All right. After taking what feels like a long detour on looking at baptism in the early church, then baptism in the scriptures, we're going to return to law and gospel tonight, try to get that back on track, and see if we can move forward to finishing law and gospel. I know we still have a ways to go, but as we move forward, so, you know, I think we all know so far that a lot of this, there is a lot of repetition in some of the things that we have covered in law and gospel, and it is repetitive. I'm not a fan of it being repetitive. However, if you look at the questions I get, emails I get, it's like, sometimes I'm like, we've, we've done like, I don't know, 80 hours on this stuff, and it's like I'm still getting the same kinds of questions or the same kinds of, of seeking Something like, you know, uh, someone sent me a sermon review that I just did. And a lot of that, what I just reviewed was stuff that we've kind of talked about here over and over and over and over and over. And I think the reason that no matter how much we talk about it, it still comes back around to being needed to discuss is because I think it seems like it's such a foreign concept to the minds of most Christians today. You start really trying to distinguish law and gospel and You'll hear them talk about the gospel, but it sounds just like the law, and they can't recognize that. You try to explain to them that's law, and then you, this is what the gospel sounds like. As soon as you explain the gospel, then they think you're an antinomian, and it's just like they, like they have no categories in which to, to operate from. And in many cases, um, then it's our job to just continue to work through it and hopefully present a perspective that obviously is needed again, but it's not a new perspective because the distinction between law and gospel has been talked about for a very long time. But we are, I don't know if anybody remember what thesis we're on. We are in thesis number 12. Does anybody remember what thesis number 12 was about? Just general, in general? Just in general? Of, Of the forgiveness of sins, right. So it deals with contrition. All right. And that what can happen when it comes to contrition, basically to just try to simplify it. I mean, I don't want to go back through every single thing that we've read here, but basically the idea that, hey, you're not really saved if you don't demonstrate enough contrition. Well, then the question would be, how much contrition? And then someone can say, well, was the contrition genuine? And that kind of thing. And, it's, it's, and, it, and it just it, well, it becomes a problem. We've, we've looked at a lot of the things that's been discussed here. Um, I, I mean, I, I could sit here and read through everything again, but I, I mean, it's, it's all there. We've talked about this so many times. So I'm just going to kind of skip down. Um, Uh, yeah, I'm just going to skip down to, because uh, remember he gave uh, the doctrine, uh, he, he, go, he went on to say this. However, contrition is not the cause of the forgiveness of sins. Contrition is not necessary on the account of the forgiveness of sins, but on the account of faith, which apprehends the forgiveness of sins. Here are the reasons why we say that the doctrine that contrition is a cause of the forgiveness of sins is a mingling of law and gospel. So if we say that contrition is the reason we get the forgiveness of sins, it's a mingling of law and gospel. And number one is because contrition is an effect solely of the law, right? The law is what should bring contrition. Therefore, that can't be how we get a forgiveness of sins because, well, then that would make us getting forgiveness of sins by 
the law. And we don't get forgiveness of sins upon the law, but from the gospel. Number two, contrition is not even a good word. For the contrition which precedes faith is nothing but suffering on the part of man. So that, that even if you tried to say, even if you wanted to argue that somehow you're saved or get the forgiveness of sins because of a good work, contri- they say contrition is not even a good work. It's simply suffering. We are suffering because the law condemns us and then we suffer under the law and that's where the contrition comes from, right? This, I don't know if everyone remembers all of this, all right? Uh, for the, uh, and it says, it consists of anguish, pain, torment, a feeling of being crushed, all of which God has wrought in man with the hammer of the law. All of that comes not from the gospel, it comes from the law, and therefore we don't believe we receive the forgiveness of sins because of law, we receive the forgiveness of sins because of the gospel. So therefore, they, you, you would have to separate this. They said, it is not in anguish which a person has produced in himself, for he would gladly be rid of it, but cannot, because God has come down on him with the law, and he sees no way of escape from the ordeal. If a person sits down to meditate with a view to producing contrition in himself, he will never gain his object that way. He cannot produce contrition. Genuine repentance is produced by God only when the law is preached in all its sternness and man does not willfully resist its influence. So it's like we can't produce this kind of contrition. This contrition only comes about from the preaching of the law. But again, I think it's very important to realize the law should lead to that, that it's the law that brings about that contrition. And for me, I know that they're going in a different direction, but what always, to me, all of the arguments about a lot of this subject with people, what I always am perplexed and confused about is when people somehow perceive that my salvation is based on, well, I do this, or I do this, or I do this, or I do this, because anyone who opens and reads their Bible on a daily basis has to be constantly confronted with all of these laws that should make you feel broken Every single, you should never be able to read the Bible for 15 minutes and walk away going, wow, I do all of that. You should read the Bible every day and go, I don't do any of this. I don't, I don't do it. And there, there's the contrition. But somehow in the evangelical mind, we read it and it doesn't matter. It can say, love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. And everybody's done with their daily devotional going, wasn't that a beautiful passage? Isn't that great? I'm going to love God today. Like, no, you're not. You're going to walk away and love yourself. Now, Christ loved the Father perfectly, but we never will. So, but nobody ever, it's weird how Christians have learned to take a book filled with 9,000 laws and never feel any contrition. (laughs) It's just so weird because they literally think that they can do it. And, and I, 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 I'll never understand it, but that's the way it works. All right. It says, uh, owing to their lack of experience, many preachers are afraid they might lead people to despair. They do preach as they should, that contrition must precede faith, but they fear that unless they add some saving clause to that statement, one or the other member of their congregation may become despondent. So he says that one of the reasons is a lot of preach, a reason some people don't have this despair or this contrition is because preachers are afraid to preach the law in its full sternness, so tries to offer or water something down because they don't want people to be led to despair or to be despondent. 
But he's saying you have to lead them to that despair. You have to make them despondent because, well, that's the steps towards salvation. That's the thing that comes about it. And I do agree, the church definitely likes to... He thinks he is focusing more on they water it down when preaching to the lost. I think what we do is we've watered it down by preaching it to save people as if they can do it. I think the church has watered down the law in the evangelical world in 2023 by constantly preaching the law as if you can go do this. You can go do this. You can go. So nobody feels any despair. There's only, only some people feel the despair, right? It's, it's always weird. And I think if you look throughout church history, the entire Protestant Reformation started because one man felt contrition. He felt despair. He felt like he was despondent. He was depressed. He was discouraged. He didn't know. He was hopeless. He was helpless. That's what led to the Protestant Reformation in the first place. But mo- everyone else was walking around doing what? I mean, they even under the Catholic system, they were still walking around feeling like, well, we're good, we're good, we're good, we're good, we're good. And, he, and Luther is like, how can any of us think that we're good? So isn't it weird that the entire Protestant Reformation started that way, and then what has happened is we've kind of gone right back to the way it was at the time of the Reformation, where everybody's walking around going, we're okay. No matter how many times Christians fall, no matter how many times they sin, no matter how many times we sin, we all walk around, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And, and, and even in lordship churches, they do the same thing. I mean, you can preach that, well, the Bible says to meditate on God's word day and night. Is anybody doing that? Even in a lordship church, everybody will be like, I'm okay. Even they're like, no, oh, isn't it? you can preach it and yell and scream and pound the pulpit Nobody cares. Just nobody cares. Nobody's like, huh? What? They don't feel bad about it. Now, if they commit a big sin, they will. But there's a million of those other sins won't bother them. Pray without ceasing. Eh, you know, I don't pray that much. It's okay. Uh, love, the, love God's word more than gold and silver more than food. Yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. Memorize scripture. I haven't, me- haven't memorized a scripture in 500 years. Yeah, don't care. Study to show yourself approved. Haven't done a Bible study in 3,000 years. Don't care. Like, and you can go through, nobody cares. So, like, I don't care. It's just, we've watered it down to such a level that nobody feels that convicted by our lack of obedience to it because somehow we feel like that we do enough or we're good enough. And that's in a non-lordship church or in a lordship church. Because the reality is, every time we come to the scripture, we should be like, man, I'm in so much trouble. And then we should then be driven to the gospel. He says that the problem is preachers watered it down. He says, for that reason, they qualify their statement by saying that the pain one feels is contrition need not be very great and that the person will be received by God if he only desires to be contrite. So he says that the preachers at this time we're like, hey, 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 don't feel too bad. Just as long as you desire to be broken, then you're okay. And he's like, no, they need to feel the full weight and be broken. Um, a comforting qualification of this kind really presents contrition as the cause of the forgiveness of sins, which is a false comfort. What the preacher ought to say is this. Listen, 
When you have come to the point where you are hungering and thirsting for the grace of God, you have the contrition which you need. Now, I think that's interesting. They connect, or he's connecting, the concept of hungering and thirsting after God with the contrition that is brought from the law. Now, this, this, this may lead to an interesting... Let's find all the scriptures that refer to hungering and thirsting. Let's find all the scriptures that refer to hungering and thirsting. Right, I know this, I'm, we're gonna, you know, this is why we're never going to finish this series, but that's okay. I, I'm just, it's an interesting that he's, he took that language. Hungering and thirsting. I don't, think it, I don't think there's a lot of it used. Hungering and thirsting. Okay, what do we have? Oh, now, now, immediately we go to Matthew 5, 6. Where are we at, ladies and gentlemen? Okay, but yeah, but sermon on the... Now, okay, remember, let's just make sure we remember, how does most of Christianity preach the Sermon on the Mount? 99% of Christianity, how do they preach it? They preach it as this is something not only you can do, but this may be used as a test to prove if you are... Save, which is the most mind-blowing thing in, in the history of humankind. But what does Matthew 5, 6 says? Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, think about this. Long gospel. Let's look at it from long gospel. Is this law or gospel? Okay, good, okay, good. So it would be what? It would be law, right? You, if you hunger and thirst, you're going to be filled. But what does it say hunger and thirst for? Righteousness. Now let's stop for a second. How is this typically preached? How is this typically preached? Okay, first, a lot of people would preach that, that how do you know you're saved? You have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, what kind of righteousness are hunger and thirst for? What do they typically say? Okay, very good. It's typically preached that, hey, a saved person will hunger and thirst after righteous living, a practical righteousness. And then, and then somehow we're going to be filled by it, but I guess we're, we're going to do it. Some will kind of, in fact, let me just look here. I'm just going to grab the first commentary that I have. We may have to do some sermon reviews on this just to, just to be able to, because sometimes when I say that this is the way it's always preached, I think people don't believe me. And then when I start reviewing about 15 sermons, everybody's like, okay, we got the point, right? But, um, okay. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is the opposite of the self-righteous of the Pharisee, it speaks of those who seek God's righteousness rather than in attempting to establish a righteousness of their own. Now, this is good. What, uh, what they seek will fill them. It will satisfy the hunger and thirst for a right relationship with God. Okay, that's almost, that's, it, MacArthur almost handles, he handles that in a very good way, actually. In a good way. Now, what this book is claiming is that the hunger and thirsting after righteousness, righteousness flows from what? Contrition. Everybody understand? That's a very important thing. 
Meaning, law is preached. Law produces what? Contrition. We're broken. We're despair. So that we hunger and thirst after righteousness. Whose righteousness are we hungering and thirsting after? God's righteousness. What kind of righteousness? An imputed righteousness. Okay, remember, we've got we, we to make sure we have this down. And then if we, we are filled with an imputed righteousness, not a practical righteousness. MacArthur actually handles it correctly there. Like, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. A lot of people preach this like, hey, do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? You need to be hungering. And, and they, they talk about pursuing a practical righteousness. MacArthur handles that. That's really actually really good. I was expecting something totally different there. So that's actually good. I bet if we get a lot of commentaries, we would get a lot of different perspectives. But that's actually really good. All right? What's the other hunger and thirst after? John 6.35. Okay, yeah, right, right. So the same concept is here, right? They're asking for bread, right? And he says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now, a lot of people will say that that will never hunger and never thirst, that we will be what? How is this sometimes preached? That we will never hunger and never thirst. How, does, how is this sometimes preached? That we will never hunger and never thirst. How is this sometimes preached? Nobody's heard a sermon on, on John 6.35 ever, okay? How, how do you think it's typically preached? Okay, satisfied spiritual in what way? Okay, what kind of satisfaction are you referring to? Okay, you think it's preached that if you'll hunger, that if you uh, get Christ, you'll never hunger and thirst again for salvation? You think that's how it's typically preached? Right. How do you, how do, and I'm asking, how do we think? Why would we hunger for salvation if we have Christ? Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to ask, how do we think it's typically preached? How is this typically preached in most churches? That if you come to Christ, you're going to be perfectly content and satisfied, and you're not going to need anything. That's, that's not true. Is anyone, is anyone in any church perfectly content and satisfied? No, they're not. They're always, I need this, or I want this, or I want a better job, or I'm tired of this, or I want a new car, or I want a new this, or I want a new that, I want a new this. But if we look at it from this perspective, what Jesus is saying, if you come to me, you'll never hunger and thirst for what? We'll never, we'll, okay, so let me, let me try, I'm trying, I'm trying to help us see this, okay? 
Law is preached. What does law lead to? Contrition, right? Have we not established that? All right, that contrition makes us what? Broken. We need something. We need something. Like, what do we need? We got to have relief from the law, right? Right? We need, we need righteousness. We need gospel, right? So those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled. That's, that's the Beatitudes, right? Okay, that's a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why do I need righteousness? Because I don't have any. So then Jesus comes along. I am the bread of life. If you partake of me, if you believe in me, you're never going to hunger and thirst again. For what? Righteousness for salvation. He can't be talking about you're never going to hunger and thirst for physical food because people still hunger for physical food. So we can wipe that out off the map, right? Second, obviously, it doesn't mean you're never going to hunger and thirst for anything else again because Christians are not content. Even if they claim they are, they're not content because we always want something, right? If a person is single, they want to get married. If they're married, they want to get unmarried. Whatever the case may be, there's always a need and a want and a desire, right? Okay, so, so that clearly it's not that. So we're, what, what are we left with? We're left with only a de- uh, that we, our need for salvation will be ultimately fulfilled. Christ is the salvation that we will never hunger and thirst after. Why would we hunger and thirst after it? Well, anytime I read the Bible, what am I confronted with? Law. What does law lead to? Contrition. What is contrition then? We, we, we need something, right? We need something that will alleviate the contrition. What will alleviate the contrition? The gospel. So that uh, this hunger and thirst leads to that. I mean, any other satisfaction is not going to work. Does everybody understand? Every other attempt. Now, you can go read commentaries like if you get Jesus, you have everything you need. It's just trash when I hear that. Because Christians have been preaching that forever and Christians clearly don't have everything they need. Because we always, okay, yeah, I know, I know. I'm saying that's all we need for salvation. But we obviously still have all of these other needs that we want. Now, it would be, wouldn't it be wonderful because if you have Jesus that you're perfectly content? It would be great, but it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way because we still lack that contentment. But guess what I can be content in? My salvation. I read, I read the Bible, what am I confronted with? Law, what is that going to lead to? Contrition. What's that contrition leads to the hungering and thirsting. Because i got to have something to alleviate it. That's how it's supposed, every time I read the Bible, I should be confronted with law till I'm broken, and then I look for Christ, which is then satisfies. What's the other hunger and thirst after passage? 1 Corinthians Okay, all right. Well, we'll go to the next one. You said 1 Corinthians 4.11. What does it say? Even at this present hour, we be hunger and thirst and are naked. Okay, he's just talking about literal hunger and thirst there because they're being persecuted and suffering, right? Is that the last one? All right, 2 Corinthians 11.27. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's just a literal hunger and thirst, right? Yeah, yeah, they're being persecuted. All right, so that doesn't work. Mac, you said Revelation? Revelation 
Revelation 7, 16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. Now this is talking about the ultimate, finally, when we're present with Christ, there'll be no more hungering and thirsting. Why will there be no more hungering and thirsting? It could be a literal no more hungering and thirsting, right? But it could also be the spiritual because all my sin nature is gone. As long as I have a sin, make sure we understand this. The law never changes, right? We all still have a sin nature. So every time I read the Bible, what is struck? My sin nature, which leads to contrition, which leads to the hunger and thirsting for the solution, which is the gospel. Right? Does everybody see how that works? Right? That's, that's a powerful concept to understand because uh, it's so important. I'm going to look here real quick. I'm going to look at something really quick. I want to bring up like all kinds of commentaries here. Let me, which app do I want to use? Because it's amazing how some of these passages are preached. And, they, and they're preached in such a way that to me, literally destroys the actual meaning of the text. We, we turn it into this, something completely different. Now let's go to Matthew. Okay, uh, Okay. well, there's this, they're not, okay. Um, okay, this is not going to help us any. I thought that they, I thought they were going to um, go the typical way that this is tra- uh, interpreted. Hang on, let me look at something here. Um, yeah, they do not. Yeah, they, they decide just to skip it, I guess. Um, basically, what this, what this says is that these Beatitudes, right, tell us basically, the, uh, the, this is how they describe it. The Beatitudes describe the attitudes that ought to be in our lives today. Four attitudes are described. Our attitudes towards ourself and our attitudes towards our sin. So, in other words, Matthew 5, 6 means that, hey, this describes how a Christian should have the right attitude in regards to sin. But that, the, the, the issue is, it is dim- telling us something that we should do, hunger and thirst after righteousness, which we never do properly, right? Okay, but how, so how are we going to properly hunger after uh, uh, of our hunger after righteousness? We have to first be broken by the law, then what? Then we have contrition, and then we hunger and thirst after it. Now, ultimately, who's the only one who ever truly hunger and thirsted after righteousness in the right way, and, and a more practical way, would be Jesus. So Jesus is ultimately the blessed person, but the hungering and thirst after righteousness, the only way it's ever going to happen to us is to be broken by the law. Right? In other words, I'm supposed to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Do you do it? No. So then you know you need righteousness because... You're never going to hunger and thirst after it the way you're in which you're supposed to. So it's kind of a, a circular a concept. But most people preach this as, hey, th- you need to have this kind of attitude. You need to have this kind of attitude. You don't have this kind of attitude, then you're not saved. And see, that's, that's a problem. Now, Christ is the only one who fulfills all of these beatitudes. But hungering and thirst after righteousness, the only way it's ever going to occur in us is the law 
breaks us. We have contrition, and that contrition leads to the hunger and thirst for not a practical righteousness, but an imputed righteousness. All right, does that make sense? Yes? Okay. All right, I hope, I hope that does. I just thought, as soon as, they, they, well, as soon as I read that, when you have come to the point where you're hungering and thirsting for the grace of God, you have the contrition which you need. So the hungering and thirsting is, is a sign of the contrition. God does not require contrition as a means by which you are to atone for your sins, but only to the end that you may be roused from your security and ask, what must I do to be saved? Your contrition is where you start hungering and thirsting. Does that make sense? All right. Accordingly, Luther says that when he had, for the first time, grasped the meaning of the term repentance, no word seemed sweeter to him than that because he perceived that, it me- that its meaning was not that he must do penance for his sins, but simply that he must be alarmed on account of his sins and desire the mercy of God. Now, that's a, a much better understanding of repentance, right? He's changing his mind about what? Sin and God's mercy, right? There, there we, we understand. The term repentance was to him the very gospel because he knew that the moment he had been brought to God to the point where he acknowledged himself to be a poor and lost sinner, he was a proper subject for the attention of Jesus and could go to him with the assurance that he would receive him as he was with all his sins and anguish and misery. Please note how controversial that statement is. Most Christians you know who go to any other church would throw this book away on that sentence. Did everyone hear the controversial statement? Okay, let me read it again, because this is like straight controversial. All right, here we go. Speaking of Luther, all right, um, that, that he, he, once he kind of understood, hey, I, you know, I, I've changed my mind about my sin and about the mercy of God, he acknowledged, him, and he, he acknowledged himself to be a poor and lost sinner. Here we go. He was a proper subject for the attention of Jesus and could go to him with the assurance that he would receive him as he was with all his sins, anguish, and misery. Everyone teaches, not a lot of people, 99.% of all Christianity teaches that repentance is what? Change your behavior, right? So you must repent. You must be willing, you must be willing to turn from, they say you must be willing to turn from your sin. It's such a game they play, right? Because they say, well, you don't have to turn from it first, but you must be willing to turn from it. And if you don't actually turn from it, then you never actually got saved, meaning I have to Turn from it in order to be saved. But they say, no, you can't. You don't bring your sin with Jesus to Jesus. You leave your sin and come to Jesus. That you must turn from your sin. No, I'm going to bring my sin with me and say, here's what I am. And then the blood of Jesus cleanses me from all of that sin. The, 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 the mindset of the, of, the, of the church today is repent, like, okay, is I'm going this way, and I not just, it's not just a, it's not just a change of mind, but I, I'm going this way, I hear the word repent, I turn completely around and leave my sin. Okay, the only problem is, we know we don't leave our sin, because we're still sinning, after all of those years of supposedly 
repenting. No, what Luther is saying, no, no, no. Immediately I realize I could come to him with my sin and my misery, knowing that I have nothing but my sin. All I can bring to him is my sin. I got nothing else to bring. That's a radically different approach. Almost anyone you know who goes to church will tell you you're a heretic for believing that. But it's it's amazing. Isn't that such a Protestant thing? Like, well, the one who brought about the Protestant Reformation was wrong (laughs) about about the Reformation. So you got to love that because, uh, but yeah, I, I love that statement. A person must not inquire whether his contrition is sufficient for admitting him to Jesus. His very question about his fitness shows that he may come to Jesus. If one has the desire to come to Jesus, he has true contrition, even if he does not feel it. It is the same when a person begins to believe. In other words, he's saying, don't get into, well, do I feel enough contrition? Do I? No. If you want to come to Jesus, that's because you know that you're a sinner. It doesn't matter if you're crying, not crying, how bad you feel. You just need to know you are a sinner. And what can you bring to Jesus? My sin. That's it. You got nothing else to bring. And you bring it to him. You don't have to leave it. You bring it. Because no matter how many times you say you left it, it's showing up. I'm sorry. It's showing up. And thought, word, deed, and every other way. I I cannot stress to you how important that, that statement is. All right? All right, here we go. All right. I want to, I want to finish this whole thing, but that's okay. All right. I, I just think, I hope you understand the, the, uh, what I, I believe the significance is of the hungering, thirsting after righteousness. I think that's an, a brilliant way of understanding it, right? That our hunger, that on one hand, I want to make sure we understand because I, I, I am committed to this concept before we move on. The Beatitudes first and foremost describes the blessed man. All right, just everybody go back to the Beatitudes just to make sure we have this down so that there's no confusing. Go back to Matthew 5 because most Christians don't interpret it this way. So I want to make sure we have this down. All right, everyone has this down. Everybody got it? All right, Jesus, uh, seeing the multitude, he went unto the mountains and when he was set, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them. Now, it says, look at verse Three, what's the first word? Blessed, verse four. Blessed, verse five. Blessed, verse six. Blessed, verse seven. Blessed, verse eight. Blessed, verse nine. Blessed, verse 10. Blessed, verse 11. Blessed. All right. So it's going to describe supposedly the blessed man. Now, immediately to describe the blessed man, what does it give us? What does it give us right after the word blessed in every one of these verses? Yeah, but it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to give us, not just the word, what's it going to give us? A, a descriptor, meaning telling us what? That the blessed person is someone who, what we do, what we don't do, and what's that called, ladies and gentlemen? Law. Okay, so immediately, blessed are the poor in spirit, for, they, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those... Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed when men shall revile you. All right? So it gives you all these things that we have to do. Do we do all of those things? No. We do not. Therefore, 
this is law that ultimately does what? Reveal that we will never be that the blessed person because we don't do all of these things, even though it's preached like we can. So here's what I want you to see. Immediately then, what should this lead to? Contrition. I want to be blessed. Don't you want some of these benefits that come from being blessed? What are some of the benefits? Go through some of those benefits. Yeah, I mean, look at all these things. The kingdom of heaven, uh, you will comforted. You're going to inherit the earth. You're going to be filled. You're going to obtain mercy. You're going to see God. You're going to be called the children of God. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. That all sounds salvific, does it not? Is that not salvific language? All right, so guess what? We obviously don't think we get, so you, you, this is where it all comes down to. Either some are going to preach it. You have to do these things in order to be saved. Right? Protestants will be like, no, 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 no. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. But if I don't do these things, then I was never saved, which just means I have to do it in order to be saved. That's such a stupid game. I don't know when, when Christians are ever going to stop playing that game. But if they can't see how dumb that game is, then I, I, I just give up. I get, like You can't have a conversation with someone who can't see that that's the game they're playing. No, I believe you're saved by grace. But if you don't do this, you're not saved. Meaning, I have to do it to be saved. (laughs) So stop it. Okay, so here's my take. That blessed person is Jesus Christ. And in him, we have all spiritual blessing. So in him, I meet all of this. But how do I get to him? By looking at this, I feel contrition. And by feeling that contrition, then I hunger and thirst after righteousness. I I, I hunger and thirst after Christ. And then Christ takes care of all of this on my behalf. Right? Does that make sense? All right. I hope that makes sense. But the hungering and thirsting after righteousness there, I am using it to just demonstrate how it works. We hunger and thirst after righteousness, the infused righteousness. And the hunger and thirsting comes from the law. I want to I, I make sure everyone gets this. The hunger and thirst comes from what? The, the law. Oh, did I, I, I imputed righteousness. If I said infused, I apologize. Obviously, I believe imputed righteousness. Okay. Yeah, we get infused. I, I should just start teaching infused righteousness. And it would be interesting. It would be interesting if I started saying infused righteousness, how many people would even disagree? I think most Christians wouldn't, you, yeah, you guys would, but I don't think, I, and most people who listen to the podcast, but I think people from other churches wouldn't even disagree. Because I think most Christians believe in an infused righteousness. Even though they claim they don't, they clearly do. But no, we hunger and thirst. We have to hunger and thirst after an imputed righteousness, right? Because if I hunger and thirst after an infused one, you know the problems that's going to create. Because now I got to cooperate with it. And, and keep at it, right? So which is a problem. So we... Law brings contrition. Contrition leads to hunger and thirst for imputed righteousness. And that's the only way I can be, well, blessed. Right? That's the only way I can be filled. That's the only hope I have. That's the only hope of never hungering and thirsting again. Right? Does that make sense? All right. He says, The same mistake is made when a pastor is readily satisfied with a slight sign of contrition from his parishioners. 
In wicked men who have lived a long time in sin and shame, the conscience may suddenly become aroused and charged them, for instance. With having perjured themselves, they are seized with palpitating fear because of their consequences. Or their conscience may reprove them with having soiled their hands with the blood of murder. However, these people are not alarmed because they regard themselves as poor sinners, but it is one but uh, but it is one particular sin that frightens them. All right. Now what? He, now this is where he starts. I, I get a little frustrated with this, but I understand what he's trying to do. He is trying to say that some person could have what appears to be contrition, but it's not contrition because of their sin before God. It's their contrition because of their consequences or because of what they have done over one sin. I I, I do have problems with that. And the only reason I have problems with that is how in the world am I ever going to know that? Right? Because some people would have looked at David and said the only reason he felt bad because he got caught. Right? But don't... So let, we weren't, we're not going to play that game. All right? I don't know if someone's contrition is real and I don't know if someone's contrition is false. You know, to be honest, sometimes I don't know if my contrition is real or false. I never know. But I know this, if whatever, what, what, even if my contrition is wrong, if it leads me to hunger and thirst after God's righteousness that's imputed, who cares? Right? Who cares how I got there? Right? Who cares? Because I still get to the right solution. If, this, if the contrition leads me to the wrong solution, then we're in trouble. If it leads me to the right solution, I'm not going to sit there and nitpick how the contrition came about. Does that make sense? If, you're, if you feel contrition because you got caught, but it leads you to hunger and thirsting after God's righteousness that's imputed, then you've, you got to the right righteousness, did you not? Yeah, so, who, so I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of taking it apart. Um, it says, however, these people are not alarmed because they regard themselves as poor sinners, but as one particular sin that frightens them. Outside if, uh, of that, they imagine they are good at heart. There are many abandoned villains of this kind who have already had their sentences of doom served on them. They may tell the pastor that they admit being at fault in this or that or other thing in which they slipped, uh, but they appeal to the fact that they are good of heart. If a pastor is satisfied with a partial contrition of this sort, it treats contrition as a merit. Okay, well, I do understand that we can't see contrition as a merit. Just because I have contrition, that doesn't merit anything. My merit comes from the imputed righteousness of Christ. Here's what I would say. Um, if someone seems to have contrition over a particular sin, but they keep telling me they are a good person, then clearly that's the wrong kind of contrition. Because there's no one good. So you can't see yourself as a good person who simply made a mistake. You have to see yourself as a sinner who sinned because you have a sinful Nature. So I do, so I can see where they're kind of going here. It says, Others say that contrition is necessary and that their own reason must tell them that God cannot forgive their sins, which they treat so lightly. They then proceed to describe to them what must be the quality of their contrition from texts like Psalm 38, 6 through 8. Everyone look at Psalm 38, 6 through 8 really quick. What do we find in Psalm 38, 6 through 8? Psalm 
What do we find in Psalm 38, 6 through 8? Okay, now. Yeah, okay, yeah. If I, if I read Psalm 38, verse 6, I am troubled, I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning, for my loins are filled with a loathsome disease, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble, sore, broken. I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. What he's saying is what some people will do will say, you must have that kind of contrition. And if you don't have that kind of contrition, then it's not the right kind of contrition. And I, I don't think that that is obviously, that's not, that's not prescribing what kind of prescri- uh, contrition everyone must have. Does everyone understand that? It says legalistic pastors will, uh, will ask their client whether he can say all these things concerning himself whether he has ever gone bowed down in mourning for a whole day, whether there's been a time when his loins were dried up, whether he can say that there was no sound part in his whole body. Unless he can point to this criteria of what they regard as genuine contrition, they tell him to imagine that, that, uh, to imagine that he has been truly contrite, all right? Or tell him not to imagine that he has been truly contrite. In other words, what they're saying is, some pastors will take this and say, if, unless this is you, then you're not contrite, therefore you can't be saved. Right? That's a problem, right? Because I don't think that's prescribing exactly how we're supposed to feel, is it? All right. They say this method is wrong. True, the text cited describes David's repentance, but where is there a text that prescribes the same degree of contrition for everyone? We would agree with that, right? There is no such text. On the contrary, we find that when Peter... Peter hearers on the first Pentecost were cut to the heart. They were moved to cry, what shall we do? Uh, the uh, mercy of God was preached to them immediately. In other words, in Acts 2, they didn't sh- demonstrate that kind of contrition. It just says they were cut to the heart. So meaning that it's not going to look the same in every single person. And immediately the gospel was, in a sense, preached to them. Um, David's own case serves as an illustration. He had lived in... in, in in impenitence for an entire year when Nathan came to hold his awful sin up to him. With a contrite heart, David cried, I have sinned against the Lord. That was all. The prophet Nathan noticed at once that David had been struck down and was crushed. Accordingly, he said to him, the Lord also has put away your sin. 2 Samuel twelve thirteen. In other words, that he didn't go, well, David, do you feel really bad about it? David, are you crying enough? no. David was like, I've sinned. And he was like, God has removed your sins. That's how it's done. You don't have to, you don't have to see how hurt, how, you know, well, are they genuinely broken? If they acknowledge their sin and they're driven to the, to the uh, righteousness that's imputed, then that's sufficient. Now, do you want to see more? You know, sometimes we want to see someone groveling. We want to see someone, you know, falling on the ground, beating themselves, but... Um, that doesn't prove anything. In other words, someone can may have very little outward contrition and may be far more contract than the person who shows all kinds of outward emotion. You can't judge it that way, can you? I, I don't think you can completely judge it that way. You've got to take the person's uh, personality into effect there. Uh, the same thing we read about the jailer at Philippi. Only a few minutes before he had been so terribly agitated uh, that he was about to take his own life, when he fell down before the apostles and cried, man, what must I do to be saved? He was not told that he must produ- produce contrition in himself. 
and that a profound and a serious one. He was not reminded of penitential acts of the penitential acts of David, but he was promptly told, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. The apostles saw plainly that the man was crushed and craved mercy, and they regarded that as sufficient. When a person has been made to hunger and thirst for mercy, contrition has done its full work. When a person has been made to hunger and thirst for mercy, contrition has done its full work. All it means is you hunger and thirst for mercy. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. Then it's done its work. If we may assume in all reasonableness that a person has been, has been pried loose from his self-righteousness and wants to be saved by grace alone, he should, for God's sake, confidently preach the gospel to him. If we can see that someone is hungering and thirsting for mercy, what do we do? We give him the gospel. We don't wait around. We, don't, we, don't, we just give it to him. It will not be too soon. A person cannot possibly come to Jesus too soon. The trouble is that a people, that people frequently do not really go to Jesus. They call themselves poor sinners, but, but are not, uh, but are not. They want to bring before God some merit of their own. It is sheer hypocrisy when they say they're going to Jesus for, for as a matter of fact, they do not come to him as poor beggars with all their sins. In other words, some people don't really come to Jesus. They just want to say, I'm a horrible sinner, thinking that, that, will, that, that they deserve something because how, of how much contrition they have shown. You know, you can't come to Jesus with the quality of your contrition. You just come to him as a beggar. A person whom God has granted grace to see himself crushed and broken without any comfort anywhere and looking about him anxiously for consolation, such a one is truly contrite. He must, not, he must not be warned against going to Jesus, but to him the gospel must be preached. He must be told not only that he may, but he should boldly come to Jesus and not imagine that he is coming too soon. I completely agree with that. But here's what I want to add something to it. This should, be true of a, this should not be true just of the unbeliever. Believers should feel that same contrition and should immediately come to Jesus. And we should, feel, we should feel that contrition every time we read our Bible, because every time we read our Bible, what are we confronted with? Law. And what do we see every time we read the law? Our failure to do it. All right? Does everybody understand that? All right, now this next part, I'm just going to read, and we'll stop, all right? Because I don't really have time to break this down. If we find something we have to deal with, then we'll circle back to it on Sunday. If not, we'll just finish this chapter. One of the principal reasons why many at this point mingle law and gospel is that they fail to distinguish the daily repentance of Christians from the repentance which precedes faith. All right, now he says that, there's, that what happens is people confuse this. There's a repentance that comes before faith and there's a repentance that comes after faith. Right, right, yeah, it's a daily repentance, right? Right, now, this is what he says. Daily repentance is described in Psalm 51. David calls it a sacrifice which he brings before God and with which God is pleased. He does not speak of repentance which precedes faith, but that which follows it. The great majority of sincere Christians who have the pure doctrine have a keener experience of repentance after faith than they do of repentance prior to faith. That is interesting. Saying those who truly understand, they have, a, they, have, they, have a, 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 they have experienced repentance more after faith than they did before faith. 
Because before faith, you don't really understand it. After faith, you should know what repentance is. And you should be repenting how, how frequently? Daily. Why? No, because daily we sin. I, I just want to make sure you, we see that this book acknowledges that we sin every single day. Because we all sin every single day. It says, for having good preachers, they have been led to Christ in no roundabout way. While they are with Christ, their former self-righteousness may make its appearance again, in spite of the fact that they have been shattered uh, for them many a time. God must smite these poor Christians again and again and again to keep them humble. David's example may serve to illustrate this point. He had come to faith in a moment, but what misery did he have to pass through later? A prophet had spoken to him the word of the Lord, but his dying day, his heart was burdened with anguish, distress, and misery. God had ceased to prosper his undertakings. He met with one misfortune after another until God released him by death. But all that time, David had contrition together with faith. That is indeed a sacrifice which God is well pleased. Contrition of this kind is not a mere effect of the law produced by the law alone, but it is at the same time an operation of the gospel. All right, now this is interesting. He is saying that there is a contrition that is just based on the law, right? And that's, that's the kind that leads to the repentance before faith. But there is a contrition that is based off law and gospel. And that is the contrition we should experience as a Christian. The law, we're constantly broken by it, but the gospel should bring contrition because of God's great grace and mercy should make us even more contrite over our sin. Does that make sense? All right. By the gospel, the love of God enters a person's heart. And when contrition proceeds from love of God, it is indeed a truly sweet sorrow and acceptable to God. God is pleased with it for we cannot according for we cannot accord him greater honor than by casting ourselves in the dust before him and confessing, you are righteous, O Lord. I'm a poor sinner. Have mercy on me for the sake of Jesus Christ. So he's saying that there is a, so make sure we understand this. There is a, a contrition that precedes faith. Everybody got that? Yes? So we have law, contrition, and a repentance that precedes faith. After salvation, the law is still there, is it not? Does it still not bring contrition? Yeah, every day because we sin. But at the same time, the gospel should bring a contrition as well because the love of God is now, we are aware of God's love. We are aware of his mercy. We are aware of his grace. So we should be even more contrite over our sin because we know of how much love and mercy he has given to us. And therefore, we should constantly, daily, throw ourselves before him and say, what? I'm a poor sinner. Have mercy on me for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that concludes the chapter on contrition. Any questions about contrition? Think we have it down? Right? Contrition leads to a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I think that's the, uh, a big takeaway here, but all of that other stuff as well. All right, we'll stop. Well, God, we come before you this evening. We thank you for being able to continue to work on such a difficult subject. 
Help us understand that this teaching is so contrary to what we may hear everywhere else, but that we understand it correctly and we continue to just pursue it at all costs, no matter how difficult it may be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,